Today we have Sharice Schlott. She's an addictions counselor, and as we've covered many times, where there is addiction, there is trauma. Trauma seems to be the root of so many things. Her personal story is really amazing. Uh, Her partner, her boyfriend, husband, whatever he is, is a soldier as well. So we get into talking about that and her personal story of anorexia and bulimia, which the root of that was also trauma. Trauma, 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 trauma. I tell you, it causes nothing but problems in this world. And the conversations that we get into, her experiences, are just something else. So thank you for tuning in. This is a powerful show. This particular episode, I wouldn't be surprised if people don't listen to it again and again and again. There's a lot to unpack here. So thank you for tuning in. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible, with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we're rolling in three, two, one. Today on the show, I have my neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> Met my neighbor walking around and serendipity. She is a great fit for the show. Sharice Schlott. Mm-hmm. Nice to have you over here in the living room. Yeah, in, in, my in pleasure. My, in my studio. My pleasure. I I'm do. excited to be here. Well, I appreciate it. Now, you work in the area of addictions and trauma. Yes. Why would you do something so silly as to work in this field? Why would you do something like that to yourself? Yeah, well, I think like most people's path, you get there through it by going through it yourself. <laughs> so uh, I like everyone, I have a long story as well. But short story of that long version is I, I spent uh, 16 to 22 from the ages of 16 to 22 in inpatient treatment for anorexia and bulimia, nervosa. That was a long journey. I kind of danced from uh, Calgary to Edmonton and I'd get back into life and didn't go so well. (laughs) Maybe last about six months, it seemed like every new year I'd end up back in treatment. So that was a long road. Um, I, my last time in treatment, I decided to relocate to Edmonton so I could do more outpatient and ongoing care. And that seemed to be the kicker. Um, but then of course, like most people just transferred to something else (laughs) and that's where my kind of misuse of alcohol came in. And yeah, so that led me kind of to the interest in, in the addictions field itself. Um, I know I've heard other people talk on the show before about, you know, not treating the substance part of the addiction. They want to look at the underlying issue. Right. And, um, that's I'm right on par with that. Yeah. Kind of what, what behavioral or what issues underlying that led to that, that process. And I think we're really quick to persecute, criminalize, judge. Um, but obviously most individuals have a lot more going on underneath. So it's been pretty well established that the root of PTSD or the the root of addictions is trauma rather. Absolutely. So yeah. the root of trauma or of addictions is trauma and the root of trauma is other trauma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, underlying traumas. But is it the same for anorexia? I would say hundred percent. Like, like 
I would say there's obviously you have some biological predisposition, some, you know, personality factors, and then just some environmental triggers that kind of add to that mix and wham, bam, you're, you're right into it. So yeah, I'd say it's a combination of factors, but, but definitely trauma plays into that. Yeah. And then you ended up hooking up with a soldier as your life partner. Yes. What are you thinking? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, uh, well, I'm sure most uh, therapists, we always And an say, infantry soldier. I mean, come yeah, on yeah. here, Sharice. Yep. What, what are you doing? Yep. Yeah. I always like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how has that been? Because um, you got your own stuff to deal with and yep. you're in the world of trauma and addiction. Yeah. As a counselor or what's the right therapist? Yeah, I'll say therapist. Yeah. Okay. And, um, what's it like living with a soldier? Uh, it's been for the most part, he's, uh, we're, we get along really well. He has a deep interest in psychology and he's into the personal development realm as well. So we really clicked initially on that and, and shared struggle, obviously. Um, you know, it's, it's always nice to know you're in Miserable company? No. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he was away this whole summer, so that was challenging. Um, he was in Wainwright for training, and he was doing his uh, infantry course, actually, over the summer. So he came back a, a very tired person after his, you know, uh, time in the field and six days of no sleep. And so that was an adjustment and it took him some time, a few weeks to kind of get back into the swing of life. So what was different about him when he came back from infantry training? Um, I would say hopefully Brandon, you don't mind me talking about this, but, um, Brandon is a very cognitive individual. He's once he's switched on, he's in that gear and he's a, he's a go person. So I found after the crash, he was still really, um, I would just say really in the cognitive realm, like really disconnected maybe from his body and um, how he was feeling. He was just kind of going through the motions of life. So I think it took some time and me sitting with him through it for him to adjust back to being in himself and realizing, okay, I don't have to be on high alert. I'm in, you know, a home environment and yeah, just kind of getting back into the gear of quote unquote normal life. So one of the struggles within the veteran community is that people minimize the effect of the training. Mm -hmm. They figure, well, if I haven't been in some really, really rough combat, I shouldn't be injured in Mm -hmm. any way, shape or form. But the truth is just the training alone. Now, uh, Brandon is a reservist. Mm -hmm. So reg force guys like to be totally douchey (laughs) uh, and, uh, and shit on the reservists Mm -hmm. by saying, well, you're just a, you're just a part-timer. What's the problem? The training's the training. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe one course is is tougher than another and all that. That's that's fine, but it doesn't matter. It, at the end of the day, what the training is designed to do is to make you a slave to your amygdala, mm-hmm. your lizard brain. Exactly, yeah. And the reason for that, it's a good reason. Mm-hmm. In combat, if you're not listening to your lizard brain, fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. if you're not... A, putting all your focus on that and making sure that it's not freeze and it's not flight. So you're, it's conditioning that lizard brain to never freeze, to never be in flight. Mm -hmm. It's always aggression comes at me. Mm -hmm. I get 10 times more aggressive and and now it goes. Yeah. 
So you're conditioning the lizard brain not only to be in control of what's going on so that you don't die and your friends don't die, but to make sure that the three different responses is the right response. And the people that freeze or or flee, I've never seen anybody flee, but I've certainly seen people freeze, mm-hmm. they don't make it through the training. Yeah. So anybody who makes it through, you are trained to respond with violence and aggression, mm-hmm. which is the only way to survive a combat scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Makes you a great soldier, mm-hmm. not great for life. No. Because subconsciously everything becomes a threat or any threat that you have rather, you respond to not consciously, you respond to with extreme aggression because it is a life or death situation. Your brain can't figure it out. Yeah. And you're living with that now. Mm-hmm. And it's just the training. You don't need a deployment. Yeah. The training by itself does it. Yeah. So why this field for you? We haven't really got like we've we've we started with that question. Yes. But I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Sure. So um, I'm going to kind of take this first from like a societal stance and then move to the individual. So I think society is really set up where you're taught, I guess the American or Canadian dream is, you know, pursue, 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 um, strive for more. We have this really externally seeking society, um, where we're told that all the answers lie without what, not from within, right? We're, we're finding that outside of ourselves. So it's really the perfect setup for any sort of addictive process. And I would argue that to some extent we all have addictive tendencies or um, like this term is called behavioral addiction, Um, but we all do. It's just on a spectrum. And so I think it's, it's just, it's interesting that, you know, society's priming people this way. And then we have people that end up taking that maybe to the end of the spectrum. And then we have this like, condemn, criminalize, um, and isolate or shun individuals who have taken that to the extreme where we're like, whoa, 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 that's too far, right? And that has been my process too, where I realized, okay, this this dream or this idea of the external pursuit isn't working so well for me. And I wasn't ever able to fully stay well in in that system. And so I think that is why I've gone to my own business because I just realized I don't function very well in that society or in that mindset where you have to put all else above the self, um, productivity over the person. And yeah, and I think that kind of stemmed me just being like, okay, do I keep fighting myself or do I just go with what really works for for my own wellness? And so that was the birth of, of my business itself there. Um, and then from the philosophy surrounding my business that came from, again, understanding that external pursuit was not working for me. And in fact, it was, it was kind of, um, a precursor to some of my quote unquote addictive tendencies as well. So, um, I kind of stumbled into, in my early adulthood, um, Tao, which is a Eastern philosophy. So, um, that's my philosophical foundations are in Eastern philosophy, which is more about internal seeking, right? So internal, look within to find the answers. Um, what resonates with you from within instead of this, I look outside of myself to learn about myself, right? Um, so that's kind of the gift I hope to, um, inspire, educate, show people that we all possess this innate ability to, um, feel safe, to feel secure, to find love and belonging. And that's all within, PTSD is 
a disconnector. Mm-hmm. The sense of belonging is gone mm-hmm. because it feels like you fit nowhere. Yes. And which is the power of peer support, mm-hmm. which is why I created the show mm-hmm. in, in largest part, because when you get out of the police service or paramedic or the military, which mm-hmm. is, I can speak to better when you're out, you're out mm-hmm. and you think, Oh, those brothers, they, they're there for you. No, you're out mm-hmm. now. You know, and so you, you don't fit in that box anymore. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not a member of that tribe. But the civilian world, well, that's not a fit either. So what's left? Mm-hmm. Only other people like you. And if you're trauma injured, well, those people are avoiding you and you're avoiding them because you set each other off. Yeah. So what's left? Yeah. You're, you're alone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was my path too. Um, very similar, just, you know, I've, I've worked in, you know, government institution and the nonprofit. And again, like I said, I, I struggled to be both emotionally and physically well in the, in both environments. And, you know, I, in both, I either either had a mental or physical breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, and same thing I was left after leaving them thinking, okay, where do I belong? Um, you know, you, you know, your work coworkers are your friends in that environment. Once you leave, it's the same situation where they're kind of going on with that. You're in a new phase of your life, but you're not connecting with them anymore. So I had a very similar experience. And in that phase, I also really felt that even with, you know, superficial connections with other people, it still wasn't enough. So I recognized I had this like gaping wound within myself that nothing was filling. There was nothing that was overly satisfying. Nothing was giving me that sense of belonging, even when I was amidst people. And so that's where I really, that's where I found actually my mentor, who was an old professor of mine. And he was the department head of um, the addictions program at the University of Lethbridge. So I started working with him because he employs this, the Eastern philosophy as well. And, And that was my deep dive into, okay, how do I, regardless of what's happening outside of me, regardless of what I've been told or I think I need outside of myself, that there is that sense of belonging and safety within. Um, and so that's where that deep dive within started. And how do you find that? Hmm. How do you connect to yourself? I think it only comes through struggle. And for me, it's like that. Just a, just a little closer to the microphone. Oh, yeah, sure. You can just bring it to you. Okay. And I think for me, it's... Um, where you get to that point, I, I called this my puddle self, where it was just a complete breakdown where I, I just realized that nothing I could do was helping. There was nothing. And it was like through that despair and hopelessness that I found. Um, but I had to go through it, right? You, It is just like, like Brene Brown says, embrace the suck, right? Hmm. And so that, unfortunately, the only path is through. Um, but it was through the misery that I found that. There's uh, one of the sayings we like to say in group that if you find yourself walking through hell, mm-hmm. keep walking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only option you yeah. got. Yeah. You got it. You got to push through it. Yep. It's push through it or die. So yep. choose. Yeah. And people do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will attest that there was many times I wished for death. Um, I never, you know, obviously had a, the plan to do it or fall through with it, but, um, my mentor said something to me in that moment. He's like, do you want 
do you want actual physical death or do you want an end of your suffering? And I was like, aha, there's a difference. I want an end to my suffering. And that was a key moment for me because I realized, okay, I don't actually want to kill myself. I want out of this. Whatever this pain is, it feels unbearable. I definitely know that Mm -hmm. feeling very, very well. Mm -hmm. And it's a disturbing thought when it comes into your mind. You wish it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. How do you anchor yourself? How do you get yourself out of that headspace when you're you're thinking, hmm, a really bad bait about a cancer would be nice right about mm-hmm. now. Like maybe I'll drive into that bridge yep. or uh, into that oncoming semi truck in the other lane, and then it's just over. Mm-hmm. What's your anchor? What brings you back to center? Okay, so um, this is where the Eastern philosophy really helped me as well because um, it kind of works on creating detachment from the mind and the ego. Um, and so now, I guess when those mind thoughts come up, I say a thought is just a thought. Mm. So instead of buying in or hooking into that thought, I'm like, oh, okay, that's just a thought there. I don't have to do anything about it. Um, and so it's just creating a little bit of space between thought and action that has really helped me. Um, yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah. I handed you when we met the suicide pledge card. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what your thoughts are on that. Mm-hmm. Have you put any thought to that? What do you think of it as a tool? No, I think it's a great idea. I think sometimes we need to have some external accountability or even to have someone that you know knows or cares because a lot of time it is, obviously it's an emotional crisis. And a lot of the time we're like, we just are screaming for help, support. Someone see me, right? I'm suffering. This sucks. I don't want to go through this anymore. So I think it's a great idea to have someone that's connected to you in in that capacity and that sees you. And for those that aren't familiar with it, um, I created a card that is based on the Spartan Pledge. That's uh, kind of a thing in the States. And the Spartan Pledge is a, a bunch of folks in uniform getting around and in front of each other, standing in, in formation. They put their hand over their heart and they say, I will never die by suicide. If I'm ever tempted by it, I will call for help. Mm-hmm. More or less, that's mm-hmm. the Spartan Pledge. That's the spirit of it anyway. And I thought, well, how do we mm-hmm. kick this up a notch? Mm-hmm. So I created a card where you, if there's somebody that you're concerned about, you can sit with them and say, hey, Brenda, I know you're fine because we're all fine. <laughs> and I know this is probably silly, but uh, we need to talk. Um, I was wondering if you could help me. So you put it on yourself. Can you help me? I... I just worry about you. I lost a couple of friends by suicide over the last few years and I know you'll never do it, but here's this card. Can you just please place your name on the top of the card and then read the card out loud for me? And when they do that, they've created a contract. They've created a contract that I will never die by suicide. And can you keep that in your wallet at all times for me, please? And on the back of that card, it's uh, the proper suicide hotlines for Canada anyway. Anybody that uh, wants to do that, there's no copyright or trademark. Just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll send you a copy of the file. Just get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, moving forward. I just mm-hmm. wanted to explain that uh, uh, pledge card. I no, thank you. Yeah. Really think that that's a project worth, worth pushing. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me about your clientele and the type of work that you're doing right now. Uh, how do you find them? Mm. You, you said street level. 
Mm, yeah, that, that's kind of my route. So I started um, street level. I what wor- does that mean? So I was working with uh, homeless, disenfranchised people um, in active addiction. Um, I did that for probably about five years. And I was, by street level, I was walking the streets. Um, so doing crisis intervention, handing out harm reduction supplies. I'm a proponent, proponent of harm reduction. Um, so what, what are harm reduction supplies? So um, clean and new needles. Um, we were giving out like clean waters, um, alcohol swabs, crisis information like with phone numbers. Um, what else were in there? Like tourniquets, things that you would need for a safe um, injection. There's a lot of debate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, people that fear, figure um, giving drug addicts more drugs mm-hmm. is not a good idea. Yes. And there's other, others that say, well, they're doing it anyway. Exactly. You know, um, why not have them do it safely? Yeah. What's, what's your take on it actually having been there? Everybody's mm-hmm. got a bloody opinion. Yes. But uh, you've actually been there in person. Yes. So what's your opinion on injection sites? Um, so I was actually, I'm biased on the side of in favor because I was on the research team. Okay. For starting the one in Southern Alberta, the which had um, was the first of its kind to have inhalation rooms as well. Just as a caveat, there's no um, administration or giving of drugs. Um, the drugs are still up to the individual to bring in and use. That is still illegal. <laughs> so drugs are not provided. It's just the use supplies. Um, I think I was on the streets during the change with the opiate epidemic, and that was a huge game changer. So just for example, on an average night prior to fentanyl hitting the streets, we'd maybe hand out, I don't know, I'd say maybe like 100 needles at most. And the idea with handing out the needles is one per use. Um, behind that, we our mandate was HIV, hep C prevention, um, so safe use. And again, it, as soon as a needle's been used once, you, there's no possible way to clean it fully. Um, and... You can even see if with a microscope, just after one use, how the needle um, is broken down itself. So it snags veins, it creates nasty abscesses. So we always were proponent of one-time use. So um, that is the whole idea of giving so many needles. We would do a 10-pack. Heavy injection users can use up to 20 times a day. Wow. Yes. So you would, right there, we would need 20 needles a day, right? It is just beyond my comprehension how they are creative enough Oh yeah. To find the money. Yes. For those injections. Yeah. I, it's beyond me. And how inventive to make even like if they, so, and that's the other thing. If they didn't have the clean supplies, they would create their own injection method. Right. And that might be, you know, you rig some sort of like, you know, if they're smoking, they would make some sort of pipe out of an exhaust or just so inventive that when there's a will, there's a way. Right. So the whole idea is if you take, that struggle away um, for at least that component where A, reducing crime, B, where our health costs are through the roof um, with, so I think they say every $1 invested in harm reduction saves $5 in healthcare expenditures. Is the harm reduction in a way kind of like baiting the hook to get them into treatment? Yeah, to some extent, yes, because... Um, lots of these people are, like I said, when you're in your active use and especially in um, homelessness, there's no connection with any sort of healthcare professional, right? And so it's kind of like their first line of entry. So 
the whole idea with having an organization on the ground is that they have connection to an addiction specialist. There's a nursing team there. Um, there's a housing team. So it's kind of their point of entry into the healthcare system in general. The injection sites mm-hmm. are similar to this podcast in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this podcast, it, although it does provide direct help and a sense of connection, it's also a halfway house to professional help. Yes. And the injection sites seem to be the exact same thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. They're the halfway house to professional help. That's yeah. how you bait the hook. Yeah. Just like I'm baiting the hook for these listeners right now to, uh, and I, I get messages all the time mm-hmm. from, from folks that they're just not ready exactly. to, to talk to a psychologist yeah. or, or a therapist of any sort. Mm-hmm. They're just not ready. And yeah. I get that, yeah. but they can muster up enough steam to listen to this show. Yeah. And, and that's what they can do. And I, having compassion for that, it, it's just no different than these injection sites. It's the same idea. Yeah. And we always said our tagline was dead people can't recover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as a side note, there's more deaths with from opiates and drug use right now than COVID. Considerably so. Mm-hmm. And that's a another conversation that I will not have on this podcast (laughs) because I got my opinions, I tell you. So um, your practice right now, Mm -hmm. are people coming to you? Do you have an office? What's what's going on? Yeah, so I operate out of my home. Um, It's just a private therapy practice. I, right now I'm just doing it virtually, but um, you know, I've, I've kind of been of the mindset I'm I've not really been seeking. I, I let the clients come to me because because my philosophy is a little bit non-traditional. Um, it's basically come through referral. I do run a monthly women's group, um, mostly middle-aged women, not addiction-specific, just women's wellness. And that's been running for over a year now. And just through that, there's been you know referrals from family, friends, and that's mostly how my individual clients have came about. And then I also did, um, when I first moved to Okotoks, I took a six-month contract through the government on a local reserve and did a project out there as well. So, And that's really interesting. Um, did you have any surprises on the reserve? Any takeaways? Um, not overly. Like I, I, With you know the disenfranchised homeless population that I was working with, about 80% of them were Indigenous. So I had extensive... Um, just, I don't know, I guess, experience per se, uh, working with Indigenous. Um, and I loved their heart-centered nature, um, just so open to conversation, so willing to connect. And that was the exact same experience on reserve. So that that was, yeah, I ca- those are memories I can never um, be thankful enough for. So definitely that. And I, I guess I just want to be careful because I don't want to Indigenize um you know, addiction or anything, but they seem to be hit really hard with the addiction and the opiate em- epidemic only because probably all of these factors we've talked about. The more trauma, yeah. the more addiction. <laughs> exactly. And it's, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of communities that are disproportionately traumatized. Exactly. With uh, First Nations peoples, it's, it's intergenerational. Absolutely. And to explain intergenerational... Um, I'll, I'll use my own example. Mm-hmm. My grandfather on, on my dad's side, he spent when he was, when his son, my dad was two years old, mm-hmm. he went off to war, came back six years later. 
So here's at the age of eight, my dad meets his father for the first time. And he meets a father that just spent six years in the European theater in World War II. And at the age of 15, my dad and his sister, who was two years younger, were on their own. They were abandoned. Mm. And it was like a game of survivor. Good mm-hmm. luck. Yeah. You know, what? we're going to be about three hours over here. And, uh, you know, let us, let us know if you need anything. And at the age of 15 and 13, they were on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, through no fault of their own, they were on their own. They were left by their parents. And um, after a couple of years of survival, they were re- reunited with them. And But that is, a- imagine my childhood. Because mm-hmm. here's my exactly. father who's been abandoned by his parents at that young age. And what he knew of his dad is this traumatized World War II veteran. And now he's, these are the skills that he has to be my dad. Not a lot of skills there. Mm -hmm. And that is my upbringing. Exactly. That that was uh, a little rough. Mm -hmm. And now when I have my boys, I have two boys my instincts are to father the way I was fathered, which ain't great. (laughs) And I had to unlearn that and catch myself and learn better ways and better habits and better responses to break that cycle. So we're all these generations down and hoping that in generation four, that cycle is broken. Mm -hmm. And that's intergenerational trauma. And with uh, First Nations people, uh, this has been going on for... Well, since white folks showed up. Yep. <laughs> and uh, a couple few hundred years ago. And and it's tough. Mm-hmm. And you, you hear folks that say, well, just get over it. Yeah. Well, that's not how trauma works. No. It, it is incredibly difficult work to get over it. They wouldn't say that to a combat veteran, but it's the same thing. Absolutely. It's the same thing. And having empathy for each other realizing that everybody has a story. If you're at an injection site, you have one hell of a story. Yep, absolutely. So instead of saying, oh, stupid, worthless junkie, Mm -hmm. well, that's one way to go, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But that is a person who is suffering. That is a person in pain, just like we are. So be slow to judge. How do people, uh, I'm going to have on uh, the show notes, Sharice, a links to your website. Absolutely. Yeah. What's an ideal client for you? Mm, I would say people who are just open in general, maybe have tried different types of therapy, have been on a long journey themselves, and maybe the conventional means aren't, aren't working out so well for them, or they're just looking to... Um, just facilitate a better connection with themselves. I think that's my ideal client, just someone who's open and kind of willing to dive in. I know okay. that's easier said than done. But um, a bit more specifically, uh, so addictions though. So yep. any, anybody with yep, an addiction absolutely. you'd like to, t- to work with. Yep. Um, other than addictions, are there, are there other injuries that you would like to work with? Um, a lot of like just mental health concerns in general. Um, I have current clients with anxiety, depression, um, diagnosed or undiagnosed, self-diagnosed is is fine as well. Um, yeah, I would just say anyone that's that's 
looking to, like I said, facilitate a better connection with themselves and is willing to kind of look, look inward. And does that include PTSD? Sure. I, I won't claim to be a trauma therapist only because, um, there is a specific hmm, credentialization that I don't have with that. So I don't, I want to be careful that I'm not like overextending myself with that, but I'm willing to work with someone if, if they feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Now with your own personal history of bulimia, anorexia, um, will you work with somebody who's bulimic or anorexic or is that something that you would avoid? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, I think it would have to depend just on the client. Like I'd have to just assess that when I was connecting with the client. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's gotta be a fit in yeah. both, in both directions. Absolutely. Yeah. And if it was something that was maybe too similar to mine, then I would refer out because I can't be helpful if I'm also uh, traumatized. <laughs> to bring things to a close. One of the questions I'd like to ask is what are the do's and don'ts of peer support from your perspective? Hmm. Ah, good. Really good question. Um, I think just with what I've seen in the peer support community is just a lot of uh, maybe like shame or condemnation around relapse or struggle in general. So I think there's this ostracizing of people who maybe engage in use again. Um, I think that's my criticism of the abstinence framework. There's no room for nuance in, mm. in the in the recovery process. And so I would say that's my biggest criticism of that is just is just the pushback on people who maybe aren't in in a place for abstinence there's not a lot of room for people who are maybe actively using periodically who are on that journey um and i think it's same as you talked about coming back from um being on serving like same thing where do i fit in right so same thing for people who are kind of in the midst of recovery that maybe are still using some there's no place for them so i think if if there could be more room for people who aren't black and white abstaining. Sharice, yeah. mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, it was, it's just been a great, great chat. I and agree. I know for a fact that this is going to connect with a lot of people. And I do hope uh, people are reaching out to you. So again, the links to get a hold of Sharice will be in the show notes. Um, that's going to be uploaded there for you whenever you need it. And you can always find her uh, it'll be her name within the uh, the title of of this show. There I am stumbling. I'm at the end of the show. I've been doing really good. Now all of a sudden I'm stumbling at the end. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. <laughs>